But as you encourage me to have my mic on, I want to <laughs> thank God for our mutual encouragement that we have with each other. He, he has given us uh, each other to exhort one another to faithfully preach the word of God, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our shared mission. It is our shared joy. Uh, because it is only the eternal and true words of life of our eternal and true Lord God that will be able to rescue and save all people who are dead in their trespasses and sins in this world that is perishing, in this world that is just marked for judgment. And friend, this is the message of God's word that you hold in your hands. I hope you hold in your hands this morning. Um, from the first page to the very last page. It is God's gracious, his kind, it is his effectual word of rescue. And it is a word that speaks of and points to our one and only rescue word. And that is our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It points to him from beginning to end. He even said so uh, in the gospel. So, and at Grace Church of North Olmstead, we have been so blessed in our Sunday school hour. We've been studying the Old Testament book of Exodus. And this morning, I would love to share with you uh, a little bit from our study of the books of Exodus. And we're uh, finishing up or in the middle of Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 3. And Exodus chapter 3 is a famous chapter. It's famous for being that chapter where the Lord God speaks to Moses from the midst of a burning bush that is not being consumed. And I want you to turn to Exodus 3 with me in your Bibles. Look at verse 1 and 2. It sets the scene for us. It says this, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord, or Yahweh, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. Yet the bush was not being consumed. So, in our study of Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 3, we have noted that the Lord God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he always draws his people to himself. He always reveals himself to his people through his word, by his grace and mercy in the same way. Here in Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses. But the Exodus 3 Moses, that we have to understand to really appreciate this chapter, the Exodus 3 Moses is different than the Moses that we read about in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the 80-year-old Moses, who has spent the last 40 years trudging through the wilderness by himself and about the menial and loathsome task of looking after dirty and stupid sheep night and day. In Exodus 3, we have a Moses who has been humbled from the Exodus 2 Moses. The Moses of Exodus chapter 2 was royal. He was in the palaces of Egypt. He was proud. Why? 
Why do we have a different Moses in Exodus chapter 3? Why is it here that God speaks to Moses and reveals himself in the midst of that burning bush? And the answer is simple. It's a premise of Scripture. It's a foundational principle that you can write down and take with you. It's this. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's in Psalms 138. That's in Proverbs. That's in James. That's in 1 Peter. That's throughout Scripture. Proverbs 15.33 tells us about a chronology. And it says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor comes what? You know, humility. Elsewhere we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God shows grace to this humble Moses in not only appearing to Moses from the burning bush, but in calling to Moses from the burning bush. And in verse 3 to 4, we see the Lord's consistency in his call uh, to his people from the burning bush. Verse 3 and 4. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burning up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, when I say God is consistent in how he calls his people to himself, I do not mean that God calls all of his people from the marvel of a bush that is on fire, yet is not consumed. But God does call his people from the marvel of where he has revealed himself. And where God has revealed himself is, yes, in creation he has revealed himself. That is a marvel. But he has revealed himself in the marvel of his word. And he has revealed himself in the marvel of what he does and the change that he brings in his people. And in his grace, those become marvelous sights to the people that are trudging through the wilderness of this world that cause them to turn aside from the pursuits of the world and investigate something that they don't understand. And his people, as they investigate the word of God, they find the Lord God is calling them by name to himself. And the people, his people, respond. Here I am. In verse 5, we have the Lord's consistency and the warning of God to Moses from the burning bush. Look at verse 5. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And we want to note that when God calls his people from his word that you are holding, his revelation of himself begins with a warning regarding his holiness. That is a kindness to you. That is a grace to you for your life. Like Moses, before they even know the name of the one who is calling them, God in his grace warns them that he is holy and that you are not. For God has declared in Leviticus 10, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. In verse 6, we have the Lord's consistency in his revelation of his identity to his people in the world. Look at verse 6. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the consistency here is God all, God's word always reveals himself to his people, again in his kindness, again in his grace, in a way that we finite, limited human beings can understand. He does that relationally. He does that personally. 
He does that covenantally. Personally, he is the God of our Father. He is the God of the one from whom we came, who we are biologically connected to. And all of us, I may not know you, I may not know your mom and dad, but I know one thing. We are all biologically connected to one guy named Adam. And we are biologically connected to another gal named Eve. Why is this important? Because it's God's grace for us to know that God is the creator and we are his creation. And that means we are accountable to him. It is God's grace to us to know that in our father Adam, we have all sinned. And in our father Adam, we all die and we are all under curse. And it's God's grace for us to know that the the kindness, the grace, the words of life that God gave to Adam are still true for us today. Covenantally, he is the God and always will be the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. These are the recipients of God's eternal covenant promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants, mark this, 644 years before Exodus chapter. Here, that was back in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham, a promise to Abraham and his descendants to bless them from a place of apparent curse, to give them a land or a home when they were strangers and sojourners in a land that was not theirs, and to give uh, life, to give a people to a man that was so old he was as good as dead, Scripture says. When God reveals himself in his word, he does so in the context of his covenant promises, just as he did with Moses at the burning bush. And this morning, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 9, which I would submit to you is the main message and highlight of the revelation of the Lord God to Moses at the burning bush. It is the power of God's word here is highlighted even more in the context of the lack of power or the impotence of man. So, To set our minds on that, I want to look at these verses under the heading, God's beautiful words and works given to barren man, in verses 17. So I would like to read our section, and then I would like to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time studying his word. So let's read that first, verses 7 through 9. And the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Would you pray with me, please? O Lord, God of all creation, God of our father Adam, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you who have certainly seen the oppression of your people in Exodus chapter 3, we thank you that you certainly see the oppression of your people to this very day. You who heard the cries and are aware of the sufferings of your people in Exodus 3, we thank you that you hear the cries and are aware of the sufferings of your people this very day. And you who came down to rescue your people from the power of the world and to bring them up in Exodus 3, we thank you that you have come down to rescue your people from the power of 
the world and bring them up in Jesus Christ. You've already granted us grace and the gift of your word. Would you please grant grace upon grace? Give us understanding and a love for that word. And we pray these things in the name of your living word, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with a question. When I ask you to think about beautiful words, what do you think of? Do you think of perhaps a poem? Do you think of a song? Those are things in which words are kind of artistically woven together in rhyme and meter, and and that can make words very beautiful. Uh, But more so, and really often in poems and songs, beautiful words are words that contain a beautiful message, right? Beautiful words are often words of understanding. They're often words of love. They're often words of support. Beautiful words are often words of relief or response to a need. And the greater the need, the more beautiful are the words to receive uh, to those who receive. For the brother who is serving, suffering, or sister who is suffering from terminal cancer, to hear the words, you are cancer free, oh, those are sweet and beautiful words. For the sailor who is lost at sea, to hear someone cry out, land ho, those would be beautiful and welcome words. But think about the fact that it is an amazing grace, just in, it, in itself, that the Holy Lord God, the sovereign of the universe, would even speak a word to finite and fallen man. But then take it a step further. Think about the even greater grace, that the Lord God speaks to fallen man in a way that we can understand and comprehend because he's so far high above us. And then pour more on that, pour more grace on that. Consider that God's works and words to mankind are always, you can underline it, beautiful. They're always beautiful. We see that in our passage this morning. As, as the Lord God speaks to Moses, a word that is beautiful, both in its content or its message, but it's also beautiful in its form and its style. And, and the form and the style of what the Lord says to Moses next, from the midst of this, this blazing, burning bush that is not being consumed, is literally poetry. Now, it's not poetry like you and I think of as Americans with rhyming words and meter. This is Hebrew poetry. Uh, Hebrew poetry rhymes or, or couples ideas. It, it, it couples thoughts together in a specific structure. And it is called a, a chiastic or a chiastic structure, structure that is a, a form of Hebrew poetry. It has these repeated themes, these repeated ideas that's, that kind of couple around a central or main point, which is the main message, okay? And that's exactly what we see here in verses 7 through 9. These couple repeated ideas surround and focus and lead to the main point, the main message. I've attempted to kind of show that to you in your note sheet, that stair-step uh, chiastic structure. You can take a look at that. And we're going to walk those stairs this morning in uh, three subpoints. okay? The first point is going to look at the outermost repeated theme in verses 7a and 9b. And then we're going to move to the inner repeated theme in 7b and 9a. And then we're going to look thirdly 
at the central or main message that's right in the middle found there in verse 8. Okay, so let's start by looking at subpoint A. And if you're taking notes, you probably already know what to put in there. The kids always like to guess what I'm going to say beforehand. But it is this. The Lord sees his covenant people. The Lord sees his covenant people. And that's, look at 7a. And the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, coupled with 9b. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So the first beautiful truth that the Lord declares to Moses is about what the Lord God has seen. Now we know that the Lord God sees everything, but there is a beauty to these words here that the Lord is declaring that his focus is on those that he refers to as how? Look at your Bibles. My people. My people. Who is the Lord referring to as my people? Well, we, we got to go back to the Lord's revelation of his identity in verse 6. Look at verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So we see in the context, his people are the people who are the recipients of the eternal covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. The eye of the Lord is focused on his people. But what is he focused about his people? Look back at your scriptures. You see that word oppression repeated three times. And this is a translation of the Hebrew words that mean just that. It means oppression. It means distress. It means pressure. It means affliction, poverty. Basically, it means misery. Here the Lord declares that he has certainly, certainly, there is no doubt, seen the oppression, seen the distress, the pressure, the affliction, the poverty, the misery of his covenant people. And more from verse 9b, we see that the Lord declares that he has seen who is causing that or who is oppressing them. It says the Egyptians. And friends, I want you to just step back and take note here. These words alone, in and of itself, are beautiful to the person that is under the oppression. When we are being crushed, when we are under the pressure of oppression, of, of, of affliction, when we are in the midst of, of distress, it is very, very lonely. We are tempted to think no one sees me. We are tempted to think no one understands me. We are tempted to think I am alone and utterly forgotten in this misery that I alone must bear. Nobody knows my sorrow, right? That I alone see, that I alone know how this oppressor is treating me harshly, cruelly, and unfairly. And here's a beautiful message of the Lord God to his covenant people. He says, I certainly see your oppression. I completely know and understand your pressures, your miseries, your distresses. And what's more, God says, I see who's doing it to you. I see their harshness, and I understand their cruelty and injustice in a way that you don't. You're not alone. You're not forgotten. Christian, because God certainly sees your troubles, if you are one of his covenant people in Jesus Christ, 
He sees your trouble, and you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 56.2, you have taken account of my miseries. There's that same word. You have taken account of my miseries. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Such, see there the level that God sees the oppression of his covenant people. He accounts for every tear that you shed. Why did he do that? Two reasons. Because there is going to be an accounting to the one who caused those tears. And two, there is a coming promise of blessing that every single tear will be what? Wiped away. It'll be handled. It'll be addressed. Remember that the oppression and the subsequent blessing of the covenant people, that is part and parcel of God's eternal covenant promises to them from the beginning. You have to go back to Genesis 15. That's that's where Abram, remember, was put under the deep sleep, and God entered into covenant with him, and he promised to bless him. But he also said that there was a hard time coming in Genesis 15, 13. He said this, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. See again the ideas of judgment and blessing. The pr- that promise, again, was made 644 years prior to our section here in Exodus chapter 3, where God says, I have certainly seen this oppression from a nation that they are forced to serve. I have accounted for it. And this will lead to the central point that we're heading towards of their redemption and of their blessing and of their salvation that is now at hand. Now, friends, in our flesh, we are tempted to say, well, if God has seen, why has God allowed it? Why has he not spoken until now, 644 years later? Why in this way? Is he cruel too? And the answer is absolutely not. God is exceedingly kind. God certainly sees the oppression of his people, not with the uncaring eyes of an outside observer, but with the intense eyes of a loving father who will be faithful to do just what Joseph declared in faith on his deathbed at the end of Genesis. He said to them, God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised as an oath to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. He believed it so much he said, you know when you guys leave, take my bones with you. Promise me you're going to take my bones out of here. Christian, you need to know this morning that God certainly sees your oppression, your misery, your distress in the same way. You can hold on to the fact that God, if you will take through his people, he will surely take care of you. And he will surely bring you up from this land of your oppression. You can believe on it. This land that is perishing, this land that is marked for judgment, just like the land of Egypt is marked for judgment. Those who believe in him will not 
perish like the world is perishing. We know that from John 3.16. But instead they have everlasting life. And when you start to question, Christian, why the oppression? Why the misery? Why the pressure, Lord, and distress? Remind yourself that your Savior Jesus Christ bore the ultimate oppression, the ultimate misery, and the ultimate distress for you out of God's great love for his people, his sheep, and those that would be raised up with him are called to share in his sufferings. Here in our section, we see first these beautiful words about what the Lord sees, and we compare them, We, in order to really appreciate this, we got to compare this to what was seen about Moses and by Moses. Remember the Moses of Exodus chapter 2? Remember how I told you he changed? The first part of Moses' life started in beauty himself. Remember, Scripture literally says, when Moses was born, his parents saw that he was beautiful. In Exodus 2, 2. Moses was saved then from the sentence of death pronounced upon all the baby boys of the Hebrews. Instead, he grew up in beauty. He grew up in the royal palace of Egypt. He grew up adopted into the royal family of Egypt with their power and position and money and prestige. And we know that people that saw Moses, when they looked at him, they saw him as an Egyptian. How do we know that? Because when he went to help the the daughters later at the well, they're like an Egyptian helped us. He looked like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. Um, This is the point. They and Moses saw what Exodus, or what Acts 7 tells us, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was proficient in speaking and actions. Not only was he in a good position, this guy was skilled. But Moses saw himself then as something more, too. We, Moses saw himself in Exodus chapter 2 as the man, as God's appointed deliverer of the children of Israel. How do we know that? Because we have Acts 7. Acts 7, 23 to 24 tells us that when he, that is Moses, was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his countrymen, the sons of Israel. So Moses went from his high place where he was royalty in the palace in Egypt, and he decided, well, I'm going to go descend down to where the Hebrews are and go visit them. Right? The Acts goes on to tell us in Acts what Moses saw. Verse 24, and when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended and took vengeance for the oppressed man by fatally striking the Egyptian. So Moses also saw the oppression of his people, right? Moses then, he took action, but did he take action according to the will of God? No, he took action according to the will and the wisdom of the world, of the Egyptians. And we saw what became of Moses acting upon this worldly wisdom with the power of man. Nothing was accomplished. Nothing but negative. We saw that the sons of Israel, God's people, were they free because he killed one guy? No. They remained under the oppression of the people of Egypt for the next 40 years. And and until we come to this declaration here at the burning bush. He didn't save anybody. In fact, he had to work hard to try to save his own skin, and he abandoned the people and left them under the oppression of the Egyptians to go save his own life. Here's the point. Mankind 
can see the oppression and misery of this world. But they can't do anything about it. And, and you know what? All they can do is watch. And anything they try to do in their worldly wisdom and their worldly power, it just makes things worse. It just makes them, like it made Moses, guilty. Because Moses became a murderer. And he was sought out as a murderer. Man can't do it. God can. This is the point. This is the context of Exodus chapter 3. But God not only sees his covenant people, we now move to our second sub-point, and the next step in the chiastic poem where God declares more beautiful words that more closely surround the main point. Now we're on sub-point B, which is this. You already know probably what it is. The Lord hears his covenant people. The Lord hears his covenant people. Look back at the connected themes in verse 7b. God says, And I have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Verse 9a, coupled. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. The second beautiful truth that the Lord declares to Moses is about what the Lord has heard. As God declared and declares that his sight is focused, so here God declares that his hearing is focused. God declares that he hears what? Look back at your Bibles. He hears their outcry. Who is there? Match it with verse 9. The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Observe first who God has heard. God declares that he has heard the sons of Israel. Also referred to here, we're connecting things in this declaration as my people. Again, this is a statement of relationship. Don't miss that. A relationship, note friends, that God created by God's will, God's work, for God's purposes. By God's word of promise. That's how we get it. Here in particular, his eternal covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. It is in the context of those covenant promises that God hears the words of those that he has entered into a covenant relationship with by his word. Okay? Don't miss that, because that hasn't changed in how he relates to his people. Right? Now look at how Scripture describes those words which God's covenant people speak to God in verses 7 through 9. Look back at your Bibles. Their words are described as their outcry uh, in verse 7, their cry in verse 9, both are the same Hebrew word. It just means cry of distress. It's the same word that you will find when you read about Esau, who, remember, when he found out that his brother had stolen his blessing, it says he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. It's the same word that we're going to see again, if you keep reading in Exodus, to describe the great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again, when the Lord struck all the firstborn children of Egypt and killed them. That's a distressing cry, isn't it? This is a cry of great and deep distress and anguish, and it comes from a place and circumstances of great, great pain and great loss and great hopelessness. 
And here the children of Israel are crying out from such a place. And God declares that their crying out has come to me. That is, whether their outcry was directed to the Lord or not, because of his eternal covenant promises to them, the outcry of his people was received by him. It came to him, which coincides with his hearing and awareness. In verse 7 we read, I am aware of their sufferings. So, think, just think logically about this. It is natural for you and I to cry out in our pain and misery. Anyone who's ever hit their thumb uh, with a hammer when they're trying to nail something knows that. We, we do this from the moment that we are born. From the moment you could take air into your lungs, what's the first thing you do? You cry. The baby doesn't even know its mom, probably recognizes her smell. Baby certainly doesn't know the father. But it sure does know one thing. It knows how to cry out in the baby's need. The baby doesn't even understand what she needs. But the mother and father do. The cry of the child that comes to the ears of the mother and father then makes them aware of that child's suffering. And the mother and the father respond to provide what that baby can't even comprehend. What that baby can't do. What that baby can't sustain. And, and they provide it in the place of that baby's ear. And a loving mother and father's ear is, is really almost tuned to the cry of their child. Now, you can see my kids are here. My kids are now the age that I don't respond in panic anymore when I hear the sound of a crying baby or a small child. It's not that I don't care. Uh, it's just I know that it's not my kid anymore. If I do respond to such a cry... I would appropriately pass on that care to uh, the parent who is in relationship with that child. I am not. The point of point being is where I'm trying to go with this. God hears the cry of his covenant people, and he does not just hear it as a stoic outside observer on the outside. He listens as an attentive, loving the other side of that, though, we can't miss as we read our scriptures, is that the Bible teaches us that there is an outcry out of distress from men that God does not hear. We can't miss that. The difference is seen in Psalm 66, if you want to just turn there. Psalm 66, verse 16 says this, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was exalted with my tongue. Verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But God has heard. He has given attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his favor from me. See, the hope of the godless the people that do not believe or trust in the promises or the word of God, their hope is only here. Their hope is only in this world that is fading and that is passing away. This world that's marked for destruction. And, and Job points that out, Job in Job 27. He says in verse 8, For what is the hope of the godless when he makes an end of life? When God requires his life, Listen to this question in verse 9. 
Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Or will he take pleasure in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? And th these are rhetorical questions. The, the, God, the answer is obviously no. The godless have no hope. God will not hear their outcry from the place of distress. Why? Because they rejected God's word of life by which they may enter into that covenant relationship with him and be heard. Living, here's another truthism that you can write down. Foundational principle. Very simple. Living things cry out. Dead things don't. Why does the doctor slap the baby's butt when the baby's dead? So the baby will cry. But the saddest Heart, most heartbreaking thing is a birth where the baby doesn't cry and doesn't make a sound because the baby's not alive. Apart from God's word of life, friends, we are like those dead babies. We are dead in our trespasses and sins from the moment we enter the world. God's word of wisdom, though, is different. You think, well, what about people who don't know, don't hear, don't understand? Open your Bibles, friends. Go, go to Proverbs chapter 1, where you, you see this beautiful word picture of wisdom, personified as a lady, shouting out in the streets. And you see the two ways. I'll just read it to you. Proverbs 1. Listen to the two ways. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She raises her voice in the public square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she declares her sayings. How long, you naive ones, will you love simplistic thinking? And how long will scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Turn to my rebuke. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand. And no one paid attention, and you neglected all my advice and did not want my rebuke. So what's the result? Verse 26. I will also laugh at your disaster. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your disaster comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Why? Verse 29 tells us. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They did not accept my advice. They disdainfully rejected every rebuke from me. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own schemes. For the faithlessness of the naive will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them, but, verse 33, but whoever listens to me will live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Here's your two ways. Friends, the beautiful words of God and his revelation to man and for the people that hold fast in faith to his covenant promises are this. You know them. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity, not for disaster, 
to give you a future and a hope, then you will call upon me and come to and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's your mind right now. You also have Psalm 9. That the Lord will also be a stronghold for the oppressed. That's what we're talking about. Oppression here, remember? Remember your context. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, for you, Yahweh, your covenant-keeping name, for you, Lord, have not abandoned those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the peoples. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the needy. He won't forget. Christian, do you ever feel like you're praying and nobody's listening? Or that you pray and your prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back down? There's a song, according to my Spotify, that I listened to a lot last year, uh, called Sailboat. And it likens life to a sailboat. And there's a line about prayer in it that says this. And I'm pretty sure I'm heard. At least I know I'm speaking. But I feel like a fool. Because I can't hear you listening. And sometimes we feel like that in the loneliness of our pain and our anguish and our affliction. It's so oppressive. But God's word says that we don't just have to be pretty sure that we're heard if we're in Christ. We can be sure based upon God's word of promise that those who put their trust in God's word, friend, you are heard in your distress. You are not ignored. And you are heard like a loving father hears the cry of his precious little child. Because, Christian, because you are found in Christ, he's the righteous one, then you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 34, says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry for help. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to eliminate the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, says Scripture, and rescues them from, mark this, all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil will bring death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will suffer for their guilt. The Lord, Yahweh, redeems the souls of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will suffer for their guilt. So friend, I don't know you personally. I don't know what your trouble is this morning, your affliction, your pain, your misery, your distress. But I do know one thing, whatever it is, I know it fits in that category of all. All the troubles that God rescues his people from. And here it is. We have, we're finally to it. The main point, the very purpose of God, God's eyes seeing his covenant people, the very purpose of God's ears hearing his covenant people. It is the third sub-point and the main message of this, these beautiful words that God speaks to Moses from the midst of the burning bush. It's sub-point C, 
And that's this. The Lord rescues his covenant people. The Lord rescues his covenant people. Here again, remember, we've been pointing and going to this main point in verse 8. These main message of these beautiful words. I'll read it again. Verse 8, God says, So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So here, the Lord God's beautiful word reveals his beautiful purpose in appearing to Moses and in speaking to Moses. And we see it's twofold. Okay, don't miss this. It's twofold and it's directional. What do I mean by directional? Well, look back at your words of scripture. You see first in verse 8, the Lord has come down. The Lord has come down from where? Well, obviously if you're coming down, you're coming down from a higher place, right? That's, that's basic. It has to be somewhere higher than the mountain that Moses and the Lord are on at this point. The Lord God had come down from the place where he was, the place of his abode in heaven. Isaiah 57, 15 tells us, For this is what the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite, and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57, 15 highlights the wonder that we are seeing right here in Exodus 3. That the Lord, the high and exalted one, who dwells on high in the holy place, has come down. Why? We just read about in Isaiah for one reason. To rescue. To rescue who? We see here in Isaiah. Remember, I'll see it again. That he may dwell with who? The contrite and lowly of spirit. God is opposed to the proud. God gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to rescue? See here in Isaiah as well. To rescue means what I just read. To In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What does revive mean? It simply means this, friends, to make alive that which is dead or dying. That is the oppression and anguish and suffering of the world. A world that is dead and dying. So we rejoice. The God on high has seen. The Lord on high has heard. And he has come down to rescue his covenant people who have placed their hope in his life-giving here in Exodus 3.8, the Lord declares that he has come down to rescue his people, it says specifically from the power of the Egyptians. That is from the hand of those who were actively and cruelly oppressing them. From the hand of those who were, by his word, already declared that they were marked for his righteous judgment according to his eternal covenant promises. Moses Remember, Moses had tried this in Exodus 2. Moses had come down from his high place in the palace. Moses had attempted to rescue just one of the sons of Israel from the hand of just one of the Egyptians that he saw treating him cruelly and harshly. And Moses just made everything worse. 
Moses then went just as fast as he came on the scene. Moses abandoned his brethren, the sons of Israel. But friends, the point here and the highlight here is the glory of God, that God never abandoned them. And now was the time that God declared in his eternal covenant promises, now was the time that God would come and for God to do what man could never do. It was time for God to rescue, redeem, deliver his people. And if you keep reading, the extra glory upon glory is that he uses the guy who screwed it up and is a failure to do it. And you know what? He does that for us. Because guess what? You are a failure. And you know what? He asks us to join in his awesome work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to others in rescuing the world. Close your mind. But that's a different thing. Part of the deliverance also included in the second part of this beautiful word to Moses with, remember, directional aspect we're talking here. God's word coming, God has come down to rescue, but don't miss the second part. He has come to bring them up from that land of oppression and to that good and spacious land. The beautiful message of the word of God to Moses was that God would do just what God promised he would do 644 years prior, that very thing that Joseph affirmed that he would do by faith 400 years prior when he said, God will surely take care of you and God will bring you up from this place. All right? That was the promise. And where are God's people now? God's people are low. God's people are crushed under the weight of oppression and slavery. God's people are trapped in a land that's marked for judgment, a land that is perishing. And God's stated purpose in coming down to rescue his people is to directionally Bring them up and out of that place that is marked by pain, that is place is marked by oppression, by judgment, by death, and to a different place that's marked differently. A place of joy, a place of blessing, a place of life. The very land that God had promised to give Abraham and his descendants. A land that is so beautifully described here as a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the fact that this was not just like an idea or a mindset or an empty promise is seen in the fact that the Lord specifically identifies the actual land here. He says, oh, it's the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Like, you can go circle it on a map. That's the place I'm talking about. This is an actual land. An actual land that the Lord will bring his people actually into by his actual power. And again, compare this to Moses. Think back to Moses. Moses had no power to bring anyone up from the land of Egypt. He barely escaped Egypt with his own life 40 years prior, and he's been hiding and on the run in the wilderness for the last 40 years. And Moses certainly had no power in and of himself to bring the people of Israel out, not only out of the land, but to the land of promise. But the point here, guys, and the point of Scripture is that God does, and God did. Christian, as we end our study this morning, I want to remind you that God in Jesus Christ has come down to rescue you from the power of sin and this world. That's directional. And to bring you up and out of this world that is marked by pain, that is marked by death, that is marked for judgment, 
and to an actual place called heaven to bring you into an actual land which will be a new heaven and a new earth for the old things they're passing away. Listen to the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3. And I want you to really listen to it with different ears this morning. Listen with look, listening for directional aspects, so up and the down, okay? Verse 13, John 3. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Think The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, it's right there. God's beautiful words to you. Revealed in Jesus Christ. He says, I have come down to rescue you. The Lord God, the Father, sent the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who descended, who came down from heaven. Why? So that the world may be saved or rescued through him, Jesus Christ. How are they rescued? By faith, it says, what we just read. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting. People have always and only ever been saved through a believing trust that completely rests upon God's word of promise. And friends, when you do that, guess what? You enter into a covenant relationship with him. Not because of anything you do. You have no power. You didn't do any work. It's because he's done all the work and he has all the power. And he says, you trust me. And because of that relationship, you are saved. God's ultimate and final word of promise to mankind is his son, Jesus Christ. We know that from Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. He is the final word. Christian, God has not only come down to rescue you from the power and slavery of sin, but don't forget he's come also to bring you up. Okay? To bring you up from this world, this world that is perishing, this world that is marked for judgment, 1 Corinthians 6.14, listen to this. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. That's directional. That's a promise. Again, listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Again, note the directional aspect of his words in light of the directional aspect of God's words to Moses in Exodus 3. Um, let me read. Jesus says, Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but, listen, will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself, Jesus Christ said, I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen?
Has this promise changed from the Old Testament? No, friends. This scriptures you have are so rich from beginning to end, and they are just saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's word to you, friend, is consistent. It is beautiful. It is gracious. It is rescuing. It is that word of God that burns then in the hearts of his people. Yet we're not consumed. Those that put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ understand that Scripture says that now Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Think about that. Jesus Christ in you. God in your midst. And burning within you, yet you're not consumed. Does that sound familiar? You're like a little burning bush around now. And as you walk around the wilderness of this world as that little burning bush, may our lives shine his light and cause the people that are wandering around to stop and say, that guy's going through a lot. He's suffering. He's under the, the oppression and burning, but he's not being consumed. i got to step, step aside and see this wondrous thing, this marvelous sight why this guy's not being consumed. And they step and they look and that's when you introduce them to God's word. And by God's grace, he uses you, little bramble bush that can't exist, to do his awesome work of rescuing people that only he can do. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We are awed by it every time that we open it. And we acknowledge that you are so kind and gracious in giving it to us. But Father, you are keep kindness upon kindness upon kindness on us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you have promised to your people to be a teacher of that word as we humble ourselves before you. Father, we thank you that you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Please make us those humble ones that humble ourselves before your word and before our Savior. And we pray these things in his holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pulpit Ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.